Job chapter 12. Uh, this is the longest section of Job's speech other than when we get to the end of the book. And so he has a lot to say here, and this is a real transition moment uh, for Job. It ends the first cycle of speeches, and then the next cycle is going to begin. So each of his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have spoken to him. And now Job's kind of giving this final response, and it builds a bridge to what is going to come through the rest of the book. There's a lot Job says here again that will be very familiar. There's a serious portion of this that is responding to those terrible things Zophar said that we saw last week. And then there's a whole huge part where it's just Job talking directly to God once again. And so I think there's a lot of hope and encouragement for us this morning. And we'll do like we've kind of developed a pattern doing, uh, where instead of reading all three chapters here at the front end, we'll work through them together and read them as we go along and as we unpack it. Uh, Let me direct your attention, though, first of all, to this kind of idea of dreams coming true. Uh, I don't know what maybe your dream was as a child or uh, what you would dream about, and, and I don't necessarily mean that in you're actually physically asleep, but the things you would want. I, I played entire baseball games in my backyard, but predominantly I played the, the bottom half of the ninth inning in my backyard, and uh, two outs and down by a few runs, and uh, lots of times I'd actually play both sides where I was pitching and um, my dad would not let me throw a baseball, obviously, against the back side of the house. Uh, but I had, I had a whole, I had several tennis balls. And so I'd throw them and I'd hit it in just the right spot. I did it so much, there was like a permanent dirt spot in our backyard where I'd stand and pitch. And then I'd flip it around and I'd, and I'd bat in my backyard. Uh, and it was my dream, you know, I'm going to make it to the major leagues. And uh, it's not just your dream to make it to the majors, but it's to play in the World Series. Not just to play in the World Series, but to be the hero. It'd be a dream. And so we all have dreams. I don't know what your dream was or, or what your dreams are maybe even now. There's an organization out there called Dreams Come True, and they specifically help uh, children and young adults with disabilities uh, to fulfill their dreams. Now, uh, ironically, lots of their dreams are not these extravagant kind of dreams like being the hero of the World Series, but it's doing things that really for most people would be very achievable and very livable, but because of their various disabilities, they, they are unattainable to them. And so Dreams Come True comes in and tries to do that, whether it's an eight-year-old boy who his dream was to be able to ride a bicycle, and so they created an attachment, bought it for him, so he could actually ride a bicycle. Or little Grace there, who wrestles with a lot of disabilities, being able to have a sensory room in her house, and so her bedroom in such a way where she can engage with lights and, and sounds in a way that feels safe to her and not overwhelming to her or whether it is this young man being able to cook with some world-class chefs at the Ritz-Carlton. Something that would seem unattainable to them and yet they come in and they make it come true for them. What would be the dream for the sufferer? What would be the dream for somebody like Job who is just in intense agony, unrelenting pain, uh, only made worse by his friend's arrival instead of better? What would that man dream about a man who has become convinced that he is under the anger of god somehow job has gone from god loving him to god hating him that's what job thinks that's what all of his friends think in fact that's definitely what his wife thought anybody to be suffering the way job is suffering must be experiencing god's wrath and his anger and so what would be the dream of a job well his dream would be to once again know the love and good pleasure of god once again to be safe from his anger Once again, to know his kindness. Job would probably echo the cry of Asaph in Psalm 23 where he says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? 
There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Job is dreaming. Zophar gets it completely wrong. And he thinks, Job, everything would be fine if you could have all your money, your wealth, your resources, and your respect back. That's what would make you happy. He's completely wrong. Job only wants the approval of God. And so the reality is this morning, what we're going to see is our hope and suffering is a reality that Job could only dream about. As I said, it's the longest response of Job. We're not going to get to that full moment as we see Job build in chapter 14. So let me just give you at least a rough breakdown of the chapters here so you can understand. I know lots of you take notes, and that's helpful for you to, to kind of wrap your mind around what's going on in the book of Job. Uh, in chapters 12 through 13, 12, uh, he's going to deal with false accusations and really the bad medicine they, they provide. So the way his friends think about him, and so the solution they offer, which is a complete, complete misread of his problem, and he's going to point that out to them, how they've gotten it completely wrong. You ever had tried to, somebody try to help you, and they're completely wrong about the help you need? Um, what, you, what actually would be a benefit to you or a blessing to you? I think we've probably all experienced that. Worse that maybe you've done that to someone else. You think this is what they need. Maybe, maybe it's a gift, a, a thing, a, a moment, maybe even a good word. You think this is a good word, and it's not what they need at all. I remember when I turned 33, I had someone, I, I showed up to church that morning, it may have been my birthday on that Sunday, I don't remember, that's, that's enough years ago, I don't remember, um, and the first person that greeted me, they said, happy birthday, you're now the same age that Jesus was when he died. <laughs> hey, uh, appreciate that, right? Like, that's not the medicine I needed, right? Um, and so, a misread and leads to bad medicine. And then Job in 13, 13 through the first part of 14 will be, what is my real problem then? And it's really sad because we're 14 chapters into Job and he keeps having to tell his friends what his problem is. They're not listening. They don't hear him. They don't understand. I, I think that that is a painful experience of life when we keep trying to tell people, this is what my problem is. This is what's going on. This is what's going on. And they just completely bypass it and misread us. And so Job continually tells them, this is the real struggle of my heart. And then at the end of chapter 14, we're going to stunningly see, shockingly, as I've, I've never studied Job at this, this kind of level. I've never spent this kind of time in the book of Job. I've read through it a couple different times, certainly had classes uh, that at least covered it in part with the poetic books of the Bible, but I've never studied it. And I continue to be amazed at the depth of Job and how it points us to our hope in Jesus. And ultimately, what you're going to see is Job's dreaming of it, but we can actually own the reality of it. And so that's where we'll go this morning. We'll actually take it in those three sections, larger sections. So let's first of all look at these false accusations and the bad medicine. I am going to read uh, through large portions here, um, and then we'll, we'll be able to unpack it. And I want to put it all in Job's language. First thing he's going to say is, I'm not the fool here. Because he's actually keying or teeing off, right? Like, just to be honest, Job's a little ticked. It's righteous anger. And Job's a little mad at something Zophar said. And so let me remind you what he said. If, you, if your Bible's open, it should be right there. Chapter 11, verse 12. Remember this what Zophar said to him. A stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. You might remember, Job, a stupid man will get smart when pigs fly. And what he's really saying is, Job, don't be stupid. Job's response to this is, I'm not the fool in this conversation. 
I just love that. Look, look at how he, he says it in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 12. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. That's sarcasm in case you didn't catch it. That's like, you people, you know what? This is amazing so far, Bildad and Eliphaz. You have all the wisdom and no one will know anything once you die. No doubt you're the people, wisdom will die with you, but I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. That's, that's called a litotes in the, in the language. It's an argument where it's, when he says, I'm not inferior to you, he's actually saying, I'm superior to you. I kind of have this ongoing conversation with my father-in-law. He roots for the Braves. Lots of you do. God bless you. Um, I've been a Yankees fan since I was a kid. I know. I can, we, I'm a Yankees fan. We embrace your hatred. It's okay. But it's not infrequent. He'll ask me, yeah, who was the team of the 90s? And I'm like, hmm, who was the team of the 90s? Go back and look at who won most World Series. And it's a way of me saying, we're not less than you. We're better, right? That's Okay, so now you're going to have to set to the side. All your, take all your vitriol and all your hatred for me. Set it to the side. This is what Job's saying. I'm not just inferior to you. I'm superior to you in your knowledge. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? This is obvious stuff. I'm a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. And the thought of one who is at ease, in other words, you who don't have trouble, there is contempt for misfortune. It's ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. Now, I just want to show you how he's going to bookend here. So if my Bible, you've got to turn the page, but uh, chapter 13, verse 2, just so you can see the bookend, everything he's going to say in between is around this idea. 13, 2, he's going to come back to the same idea. What you know, I also know, I'm not inferior to you. That gives us a bookend that everything he's saying here is dealing with what Zophar misread about him. I'm not the fool here. Maybe to, to illustrate it, it, it's helpful to see these guys. The guy on the top there is a Taliban fighter. Uh, he was kind of low level, but he was known enough to the American forces uh, that they put out a $100 uh, reward for his capture. So this bright soul turned himself in and wanted the $100. Not, not the sharpest tool in the shed, right? I was a little shocked that they wouldn't give him the $100 and that they imprisoned him, kind of bothered him. This other guy here on the bottom, his name is Ruben Zarati. He tried to rob a muffler shop, showed up with a gun at a muffler shop. I don't know why he thought the muffler shop would have lots of cash. He did. That's already indicative there might be a problem. Pulls the gun out on the workers and says, open the safe, give me the money. They say, we don't have the combination safe. Only the owner has that, dude. We'd give it to you. Ruben, bright young man, up-and-coming citizen that he is, went ahead and wrote down his phone number and his name for them to give him a call later when the owner arrived. He got a call. <laughs> it wasn't from the owner. And so Ruben's spending some time, you know, in, I think it was in Michigan's best institution for reforming individuals. This is kind of what Job is saying. He says, I'm a laughing stock to you in the thought of one who is at ease there is contempt for misfortune. It's ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. As long as the robber thinks that he's gotten away with it, he thinks he's smarter than the cops. I beat the system. And Job's point to his friends is this. I know more than you about suffering because I'm suffering. 
your time's coming. I'm not the fool here. You are. You don't understand. You're not listening. And on top of that, you want to say that I'm the one that's stupid. Job references the fact that he's speaking out of his blamelessness. Now, now, if we didn't have the first two chapters of Job, we might be prone to look at that and assume arrogance. But God said that Job is blameless. Job's not being arrogant here. Again, Job is saying, I have not sinned in any way that deserves all this. And God responded to me. I would pray and God would answer me. I would seek God and he would respond. I would offer sacrifices and God would respond. That was what my life was like. I wasn't some hidden, sinning, wicked man that deserves this. Job knows good and well that his suffering isn't from sin. And so if anyone is going to suffer, it's going to be these guys. You know, it should teach us again to approach the suffering with humility, not an arrogant belief that we have a corner on their problems. Why can't we approach people that are hurting with a tenderness to learn instead of an arrogance to instruct all the time and enter into their suffering? You know, Paul's going to tell us later in Corinthians that God has equipped us in our suffering to minister to the suffering with the same power the Spirit is used in our lives. But that takes humility and grace and love. It takes a willingness to weep with those that weep. It takes a willingness to listen and to understand. It takes a willingness to hear really ugly things that are going on in somebody's heart and mind without judging them in the midst of their suffering. And instead, Job's friends come with an arrogance, and they think that Job is rebellious, resistant, and stupid. And Job says that's not the case. I'm not the fool here. And so then Job goes on to prove it by saying, all of the things you're saying is really obvious. Now, parody, before I read this, parody is a specific kind of mocking for humor's sake. Uh, Maybe the greatest song parody guy is Weird Al Yankovic, right? And so famously, he takes popular songs and and changes the lyrics and makes them funny. One of the first ones that he did that, that actually hit big was from Coolio's gangster's paradise and i can just tell by looking at the crowd all of you are familiar with coolio's gangster's paradise but let me just quote to you some lines and then how weird al changed them coolio wrapped this as i and i'll try not to wrap it so not to punish you as as i walk through the valley it's hard not to the lyrics just flow as i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i take a look at my life and realize there's none left because I've been brassing and laughing so long. Brassing is a way, brass is a way to get money. So I've been making money. I've been brassing and laughing so long that even my mama thinks that my mind is gone. Weird Al turned that into Amish paradise. He said, as I walk through the valley where I harvest my grain, I take a look at my wife and realize she's very plain. But that's just perfect for an Amish like me. You know, I shun fancy things like electricity. And so he has a whole uh, video to it, and it's mockery. He's parodying. Job, in these next verses, is parodying what he thinks they're saying to him. That's what this is. It's mockery. So we pick up in verse 7, and and I'm going to read all the way down to the end of the chapter and point out kind of the end of the parody. But it starts here in verse 7. Ask the beasts, and they will teach you. In other words, they're looking at Job and saying, are you stupid? Even the animals know what what is going on. Ask the beasts, they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? And his hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate tests food? 
Wisdom is with the age and understanding and length of days. He is saying, this is what you're preaching to me. I'm sitting here having lost 10 kids, my health, my wealth, my wife, and you're telling me even a dumb tree knows what's going on. Job's like, it's all obvious, dudes. Clearly, God does what God wants to do. The problem is not my lack of comprehension that God is in control. Verses 11 and 12 are significant in the defense. Do not the, does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom with the age and understanding in length of days. He's saying that they have gotten here by their senses. This is really important. What Job is saying is his friends are sitting back and observing the world. And you might remember way back from Eliphaz, he kind of had this dispassionate disconnect where, where Job compares it to them buying and selling humans and slavery, betting on people. Do you remember that uh, several weeks ago? It'd be like two Englishmen seeing a little impoverished orphan and one saying, I bet he'll never make it. The other guy saying, I bet he will. And how much, I'll bet you a thousand pounds he'll never make it. Rather than somebody just feeding and clothing the child. Job says that's how you're dealing with the suffering. It's this kind of distant um, senses, what do I see is happening, rather than entering into his world. We need to be very careful as we read through Job. While this is thousands of years ago, this is a real man who all ten of his children died. And he loses everything. His own wife says, curse God and die. And he's scraping boils off his skin and maggots are crawling on him. And his friends show up with this dispassionate, removed, very distant, well, Job, even the trees know this is your problem. What a bunch of arrogant losers. And Job is saying, clearly, God is in control. You're just, it's only what your senses can perceive. You don't have a heart to be taught. I guess let me ask it this way. Do you and I need to experience the depth of suffering that Job does to enter empathetically into the suffering of others? Or can we, by the power of the Spirit, love people who are hurting, even though we haven't hurt in the exact same way? Paul says we should be able to. And so Job, it's, it's a strong indictment to them. He says what's obvious to them is obvious to everyone. And so what Job does in the rest of these verses, he kind of wraps up that parody in verse 12, is the theme of 13 to the end of the chapter is Job now explaining how God is all-wise and all-powerful. And his point is this, like, it's obvious God is in control. With God, verse 13, are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. Who can control the waters, right? Like, that's what he's saying. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. Now, he'll start, you'll start paying attention to this. He starts ticking off every seeming wise person and how God is wiser. He leads counselors away stripped. Judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. In other words, he makes a king into a servant. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted, takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. 
He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. Job is telling them, I see all the same stuff you saw. That all of this is in God's hand. That I believe in the sovereignty of God. I agree, I'm suffering because of God. And again, remember, Job says that early on, and God does not find fault with that. We don't need to try to defend or let God off the hook for his sovereignty. And typically when we do, we end up with heresy. God is in control. God could stop all this. Job is telling them, before I ever experienced this, I knew all that same truth. But he's also telling them there is a complexity to what's going on in my life that you guys don't get. Your system of retribution is what we call it. And real quick, retribution, do good, get good, do bad, get bad. Bad suffering means bad sinning. Great blessing, blessing means great righteousness. That's their system. So what you sow, you shall reap. And we've talked about the fact that in some senses that is true. But Job is now experiencing what Ecclesiastes recognizes and, and, and frankly what all the poetic books recognize, that that system isn't always true. That, and so what Job is telling them is, is like, guys, guys, I got a calculus level problem and you're trying to solve my mess with one plus one equals two. There is a complexity and a nuanced reality to my suffering that your observation sow and reap. I'm a robot. This is the answer. Doesn't solve. Have you ever been suffering and had someone to throw a verse at you and it feels more like take two time along and call me in the morning? Right? Like there is a powerful, and I, and I, want, to, I want to be very clear, there is a power to the truth sufficient for the day or the evils thereof. There is a, man, I'm just telling you, a light into darkness, soul-encouraging, mind-freeing reality to that truth. There is. But you can also use that truth in a way that is dismissive of very real-world concerns. You can misuse it. And so I don't have a problem quoting that passage to people that are suffering as long as I'm willing to compassionately walk them through it and tenderly take time with it, right? Just like, just like I think there's great hope in Romans 8, nothing shall separate you from the love of God. But when someone looks at me and says, man, I'm just really struggling believing that God loves me. Well, brother, nothing shall separate you. We still on for coffee in two weeks? There's a way sometimes that we can take truths of God that are intended to comfort and refuse to deal with the nuanced complexity of them. And so be very clear, those truths are good and powerful and right and should be administered. They just need to come out of a heart of humility, compassion, patience, and grace. And Job's saying, I need sovereignty. I get it. But there's a complexity here. What if sometimes we don't enter in and help people suffering because we don't want to have to deal with the complexity. It's just frankly too much work. What, what if that's the reality? What if it's the way we're not loving them comes out in laziness? 
I think that's what's happening with Job's friends. And so Job is trying to tell them that's not helpful. And so I think another phrase for him is, I need real listening and effective healing. Job points out why they're so ineffective in chapter 13 and why this is so unhelpful. And so basically what he's going to say is at this point, you guys are terrible doctors. I'm going to go directly to God. Hang on. I'm about to talk to the king because you people are horrible. Verse 3, chapter 3. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Man, that's a good word. That is a good word. Your medicine, no good. That's what he's saying. Where'd you go to med school? Grenada? Right? You ever been in a doctor's office and looked to see where they went to school? I had one friend, he was here in town, uh, Joey Helm. He's a surgeon in Milwaukee now. Um, he used to joke with me, he said, yeah, Steve, there's a phrase in the med school down here that's going to make you a little uncomfortable as a patient. I said, yeah, what is it? He said, C equals MD. I'm like, yeah. I want, I want, I want some people to finish with honors. <laughs> you know, I, don't want, I, don't, I don't want 70s good enough for me. That's not who I want doctor. It's like I had one surgeon. I, I met with him one time. He goes, yeah, it's been a while since I did this surgery. I was reading up on it last night. I'm like, whoa, whoa. Beep, beep, back that bus up. We need to get somebody else, right? He says, you whitewash. Your, your, your answer is thin paint that doesn't fix anything. You whitewash with lies and worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. That's the, the classic take on the phrase, better to be thought a fool than to, than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. He's telling them a couple things I just want to highlight. First, their simplistic answers are unkind. They're overly simplistic. One plus one equals two isn't solving my calculus. And the fact that you keep telling me one plus one equals two is unkind. Could you just humbly acknowledge that you don't know? I'll tell you a phrase that I, that I found to be helpful in ministry to my own heart from others and when I minister to others is just honestly owning with them sometimes, man, you're in a really, 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 really complex and difficult situation and I have no ready answers for you. You're not crazy that you don't know what to do here. And I have watched so many people just relief wash over their face because they're like, oh, I'm not, a, I'm not stupid then. I'm not crazy. I'm like, no. No, this is tough, man. Man, I'm with you, and I'm going to walk this journey with you, and I'm going to pray with you, and we're going to seek wisdom, but, but this is tough. It is so unkind to act like there are simple answers to the suffering heart. When you're dealing with a suffering person, you're not just dealing with what the immediate suffering they're experiencing is. You're dealing with a person who's had a whole life of experiences. And all of that adds a complexity to what's going on in their life. And so first of all, he's pointing out their simplistic answers are unkind. Second, he keeps using that word partial. 
And what he's saying is, you are partial, and we've got to think about this a minute, but he's saying you're partial to God's side, so you're never listening to me. They are so on mission in their minds to defend God that they're not bothering to hear what Job's real complaint is. See, they think they're in this moment because God, get this now, because God somehow needs Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar to defend his glorious name. Last time I checked, he doesn't need these dudes. He doesn't need Bildad, Zophar, and and Eliphaz to make him look good and to make Job think better of him. See, God is not afraid of Job's questions. They are. God is not afraid of Job's complaints. They are. Job is not uncomfortable with the crying, wailing, confused cries of his suffering servant. They are. I think lots of times we add misery to sufferers because we're more uncomfortable with their suffering than God is. God's never been blown off course by a believer questioning and afraid. He's never sat in heaven and said, oh, whoa, whoa, what are we going to do here? Job is questioning. Ah. No, he looks down kindly at his servant and says, of course he's questioning. Of course he's hurting. Of course he's crying. Thirdly, he says that they are misreading the situation, and so because they're misreading it, they're actually misrepresenting God. And so instead, because they misread it, uh, your maxims are proverbs of ashes, your defenses are defenses of clay. Because they so misread the situation, he says, your truth blows away like the ash after a fire or like fragile clay. I need real help. Can I, let me just say it this way. If there is no room in our theology for dealing with undeserved pain, if there's no space in your theology for puzzling pain, if there's no room in your theology for the wicked prospering, if there's no room in your theology for us escaping consequences while others suffer without deserving them, then we will find ourselves in the same position as Job's friends, proud, judgmental, and cruel who bring pain and not help. So Job's done with these dudes. And so once again, as he turns his heart to God, we get to listen into what Job says my real problem is. He now transitions completely to speaking directly to God. You see it in verse 13 of chapter 13. Let me have silence and I will speak. He says, I'm done talking to you. I now turn to God. First thing he says is now by doing that, I'm taking my life in my own hands. Let me have silence. I'll speak. Let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? And now comes the verse that everybody likes to quote from Job, but now you're seeing it in context. Though he slay me, I will hope in him, and nobody quotes the second part, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This is what Job's saying. I know God sits on the throne, and me now taking my complaint directly to him, he may say, you're done, and push Job's button. But Job's saying, i got nowhere else to go with this. I'm at the end of my rope. You ever been at the end of your rope in suffering? You ever said things like this, God, I can't do this anymore? Jesus, I don't have one more day in me here. I can't have that conversation. I can't do that thing. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. Don't you know how frail I am? 
Don't you see, God, how broken I am? There are no more tears to shed. But I got no one else to go to with this. Job doesn't want to anger God. He's rightly, righteously fearful of God. But he's got nowhere else to go with it. Look what he says then. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. And so this is, this is the dice he's rolling. Job's saying, I'm going to go argue with God. I, I, I'm blameless. I haven't sinned to deserve this. So actually my only hope is that he hasn't hit me with lightning yet. As long as I'm here and I can keep praying, then I know I'm not fully under his wrath yet. That is a broken place for a sufferer. I'm not dead yet. So there still must be something he's okay with me about. You sense how deeply Job believes God hates him at this point. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I've prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. He knows that this may push God to kill him, but he's driven by a hope for an answer to his confusion. Job thinks this. Job thinks that understanding what is going on will be a balm for his pain. I think that's interesting. You ever been in a bad breakup? Somebody's like, it's not you, it's me. And you know good and well the whole time, it's you. Right? It's not you, it's me, I'm in a bad place. And there's a part of you like, man, if I could just know why they were doing this, then I'd feel better. Um, spoiler alert, no, you won't. I'm not saying you should never have those conversations. But we often believe that if we could just understand, it would hurt less. I sat years ago with a teenager and their parent. I was working at camp. And the kid was just trying to figure out why, why this parent treated them the way they did. The parent finally owned their frankly near abusive behavior and the kid just was questioning why and the parent basically said essentially i've just never liked you that did not heal that child but we so frequently think that right understanding then i if i understood i'd be okay And so sometimes even when we try to comfort people, we think that too. And sometimes we can see, just to be honest, we can see good fruits of suffering. We can. We can. But lots of times we can't. And if we think understanding that supremely is what will give me comfort, I just want you to know we'll miss the mark. And ultimately, because there's some things you're never going to understand. Not here. But this is what's coming out of Job's heart. And so I'm not judging Job. I get it, man. I think this way. But this is his cry, if I could just get it. You know, Paul, interestingly enough, quotes this in Philippians. When he says here that this would be my salvation, in verse 16, this will be my salvation, Paul quotes that exactly, interestingly enough, when Paul's talking about suffering for a believer. 
And what Paul is ultimately saying in Philippians, we'll look at this more in just a few minutes in the sermon, but what Paul is saying is my suffering, all these things that have happened to me are working out for the advancement of the gospel and for my salvation. This is why. In other words, Paul is saying I can comprehend all my suffering is to make God known better. That helps me endure it. And he reaches back to this. That tells you, what did Paul read when he was suffering? Job. He spent time with Job. He was trying to learn from him. Job moves on from there, though, and he says, I need some answers. And we get it now. Verse 20. Only grant me two things. There's two requests. That I will, that I, then I will not hide myself from your face. Here's the two requests. Withdraw your hand far from me, number one. In other words, stop punishing me. Take the thumb. You're grinding me with the thumb. Get the thumb off me. And number two, let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. Job's like, I don't care. You let me talk, you answer. You talk, I answer. However, I just need some answers. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. I think I'm blameless. I can't figure out why I'm suffering. Would you just tell me what to do right and I'll do it? Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? What does that mean? Have you Remember the fall? It's months away. You're out there leaf blowing, and the leaf is already just blowing. And Job's like, I'm like a leaf already being blown, and you're chasing after me to crush me. Like, what, what good does it do to keep punishing me? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. Is this for a sin that I did when I was a kid? Like Job has done like what all sufferers do and tried to figure out why am I suffering this? I can't find anything current. Is this for something I did when I was a kid? I didn't re- Is this like because when I was six, I stole a pack of gum from 7-Eleven? And I never went back. In- is, this, is, this because, is this because I actually put a tack on my third grade teacher's chair? These are all just imagines. There's no way I didn't do any of those things. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. I went a little too farther there, but what he's saying is, I need answers, God. Tell me what I did was what. Tell me what I did where I was wrong. I'm already broken. Why are you chasing me? Is this a sin for my youth? Job is going through his whole life trying to figure it out, and so then he goes to this: A sinner's life is miserably short. As he's talking to God, he's doing this. I'm taking my life in my hands. I'm taking my case to God. Tell me what I did was wrong. God, let me remind you what it's like living here. Maybe you've forgotten. You're in heaven. We're down here. Let me describe what it's like being here. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Even in your health and your vitality, eventually you degrade. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Do not open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You've appointed his limits. He cannot pass. Look away from him and leave him alone. He may enjoy like a hired hand his day. How does Job deal with the pain of life? And he says it's pretty miserable. Goethe, the German poet, once said this. He died at 83. Shortly before his death, he said, I've hardly been happy for a whole month over my entire life. Take all the days of my 83 years, and I might get 30 that I was happy. 
It goes on to describe happy times are like islands in an ocean of blood and tears. That's hope-filled. He says, life stinks, and then you die. That's Job's perspective. His read on all the blessings he'd experienced is gone. It was worthless. The money, the respect, the ability to, to image God in justice and as a judge, ten children he loved deeply, a wife he cared about passionately, health to be able to live and, and breathe and follow God, nothing. He is swallowed up in his tears. Can I tell you, when people are suffering, they lose the ability to even see the good things. Count your blessings? That's more painful because they come up with three in a list of 3,000 hurts. And the blessings seem to pale in comparison. And this is what Job is saying. This is what Job says life is like here. It rots. And so where does he go? What does he come up with? And so Job comes up with a dream. And not one you sleep, because when he sleeps, he's only experiencing nightmares. But I think it's fascinating what he comes up with. And again, we'll put it in Job's words. Why not man? Look at verse 7. There's hope for a tree. Not man, but hope for a tree. If it be cut down, that it shall sprout again, and its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. What he's saying is he's pointing to an agricultural image where in this day, when a tree would get old, and, and when I was growing up, we had a, a crab apple tree or an apple tree in, the, in our backyard. And as apple trees age, they get to a point their fruit just isn't good anymore. And so lots of times in an orchard they'll do is they'll just cut them down. But if you wait, you cut the tree down, it's old, it seems worthless, it seems dead. Out of the stump will start to grow new sprouts. And they will grow up into new trees producing new fruit. And Job's looking around and he goes, I'd rather be a tree. Because get this, life can come from death. But not me, God. When I die, I die. You know what I wish I could have? Some kind of life after death. Some new season of fruit bearing. Some new season of it all mattering. And so he dreams of the impossible in verse 13. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. Sheol is their concept of the afterlife. They did not have clear theology in what the afterlife was like. Eventually, Sheol in the Jewish mindset would become Abraham's bosom and a place of punishment. This is what Jesus capitalizes on when he tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Rich man goes to hell, Lazarus is in uh, Abraham's bosom. By the way, Lazarus as a word meaning means beggar. This is a parable. And so one calls the other side, if you could just dip your finger in water. This becomes this compartmentalized idea of the afterlife. At this point, their concept of the afterlife was more like just this almost disembodied existence. God had not clearly given the rest of Revelation that we have. And so what Job is imagining is if I die, that I would hang out in Sheol for a while, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time, and then you would remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait. 
till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. Then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. He dreams of God being pleased with him once again, of putting him on mission once again. Here's what I have you to do, Job. Not thinking. He, Job dreams of a day that God would see him and not see whatever sin it was that God's punishing. Job dreams of a day where God would even take all of his sins, put them in a sack, tie it up, and throw it in the deepest part of the ocean. He's dreaming that God would love him again. Job, in his mindset realizes or believes that this is absolutely impossible and the false hope of it only brings greater pain but the mountain falls and crumbles away and the rock is removed from its place the waters wear away the stones the torrents wash away the soil of the earth so you destroy the hope of a man what does he mean by that like how long does it take for a mountain to crumble (laughs) how long does it take for rocks to be moved how long does it take for water to wear away stones he says like if i was stuck there in sheol it'd be forever There's no hope for me. There's no hope of resurrection. There's no hope of your approval. There's no hope of your love. Like, I could wait forever and nothing will matter to you. I can never escape your wrath. You prevail forever against him and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor and he does not know it. They are brought low and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body. He mourns only for himself. Job is going full on Ecclesiastes here where it talks about what's the point of life, that, that it's, it's hevel, it's, it's worthless, it's pointless because you, you, you give inheritance and you're not even around to see what your kids do with it. He's saying, God, my life is so short and it's a waste now. My life is a waste of tears and suffering. And most importantly, my life is absent of your pleasure. False hope doesn't help people. Job's dreaming here only makes it more painful. Don't make promises to sufferers out of some misguided hope of making their situation better. I was in my late 20s going through a difficult season where I was at, and someone looked at me and they said, <clears throat> I perceive that you are like David. I mean, they said, you will be the lowly shepherd boy and then God will raise you up to be a king. Well, first of all, I think they're loony. Second of all, they thought that was comfort. I brought no comfort because I knew they couldn't make those promises. I'm not stupid. Why are you giving me false hope? My wife was going through a cancer journey. We'd ask the doctors, give us the straight scoop. We don't want false hope. Be honest with us. Let us run to Christ with our problems. It's so tempting when we deal with sufferers to give false hope. But you can't know what's going to happen. They know you can't know. And all it's going to do is hurt more. So then here's the question, then what in the world do we say to them? (laughs) Okay, Steve, thanks. Amen. Let's go next week. But I think we can really see things. We're prone to forget what we already know. I think that's why the narrator in Job gives us the first two chapters. You and I are prone to forget what we already know. And in suffering, even more so. Because suffering has a unique way of clouding the mind. 
On top of that, we have several thousands more years of revelation to cling to than what Job had. And so there is true hope. Once again, Job is unwittingly dreaming of Jesus. Now, do you remember the three ways Job wanted to solve his problem a couple weeks ago? Test time, quiz time, see who's the better Christian. Or who can flash back to the notes fastest. Remember he had three ways, right? He was like, you know what? How do I get out of my suffering? Let me fake it till I make it. Nope, that's not going to work. Let me, be a, let, me, let me be a righteous tryhard. In other words, I'll get more spiritual. And he's like, nope, that's not going to help. And then Job's like, you know what I really need? But I don't have a mediator. We read it, we're like, Job, there's a mediator. Job's giving us another way of hope. And he doesn't even realize he has stumbled upon Jesus. First of all, there is life from death for covenant people. Job says something very interesting here in verse 8 of chapter 14. Though its root grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. Do you know what God is going to use that image to be? In Isaiah 11.1, he says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. Job doesn't even realize in it, but Job is a righteous man and he's looking at the plants and he's like, man, if you even kill a tree and it looks totally dead, it's got no fruit, God can raise up new life out of death. And in Isaiah 11, God's going to say this, you know what Israel, my covenant people will look like? They're going to look dead and none of them are going to follow me and none of them will obey me. You know what I'm going to do? What I'm going to do? I'm going to raise up, hey now, life out of death and his name is Jesus. And there is a promise for us that God never, ever forgets His covenant people. Are you one of God's covenant people? Here's the test. Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus? Welcome to the covenant family of God. And you know what? When you are suffering, and you're in pain, and you're weeping, and there's no more water in your tear ducts, and you don't have answers, and you are confused, and your heart is broken, He has never, ever forgotten His covenant people. He says, I bring life where it looks like there's only death. He says, speak this into your soul then, people. When all hope seems lost, there is yet King Jesus. You read on in Isaiah 11, and let me tell you, if you're suffering, you should spend some time in Isaiah 11 this week. Because he starts talking about, I'm going to bring justice where there's no justice. And I'm going to raise up the orphans, and I'm going to deliver the impoverished, and I'm going I'm to wreck the world of the wicked. All of Job's questioning, why do the wicked flourish? All of our questioning, why does so-and-so seem to get ahead? And I know they are deceitful and wicked and conniving, and I'm over suffering. I'm Job, why do Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar have so much to say, and they haven't lost a thing, and I lost all ten of my kids, all of my wealth, all of my, all of my respect, my own wife. God, what in the world is up with this? He says, there's coming a day. Oh, there's coming a day for my covenant people when I will bring life. From death. You know what you should say to sufferers? If you are one of God's covenant children, He has not forgotten you, and He has brought life from death on your behalf. But I'll give you something else you should say. There is life from death for sinners. Job is convinced there's not enough time for man to experience restoration living. He says, I would have enough time for restoration living when all the mountains crumble to the sea and all the rock is worn away by the water. In other words, never. Job wants, listen, I love this. You know what Job's cry is? They, his friends think he wants his money back. 
Joseph says, I don't want my money. I want the freedom to serve God. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What should you say to suffering people? You should help them to understand their identity in Jesus. Job's dream was that he could live resurrected. It is our reality that we live resurrected. It means that God sees Christ's righteousness and not our sins. It means that he sees us as being near to him. It means that he sees you as his adopted child. It means he sees you as transforming by his power and his work. I love that because when you're suffering, even in puzzling pain like Job, and you know you've done nothing to deserve this, Job was still very well aware that he was a sinner. And so our hearts are like, but God, you've got to be so irritated with me. He says, no, that's not how I see you. I see you as someone that I'm making better. I'm making new. I took you off the ash heap, not because you were a broken Ming vase, but because you you are a worthless clay pot. And now I'm making you into a vessel for my glory. Why would I be irritated at that? You ever gone to somebody that's like a woodworker's house? And they're like, oh, let me, let me, you know, you're looking at their table. And you're like, oh, that's a beautiful, my grandfather was like this. Spent his whole life as a welder and then got into woodworking. You go to my grandpa's house and be like, oh, that's a really cool potato bin. He made all these potato bins. You open up potatoes, onions on the bottom. It was a cool thing. You'd be like, grandpa, that's, that's a really cool potato bin. He goes, oh, you like that? Let me show you something else. And you go down to his workplace, and he'd have all this other stuff he's working on. And, I mean, he's telling you, oh, this is going to be this, and this is a quilt whack I'm making for your grandmother, and look how I'm engraving on the side. And I'm looking at it, and frankly, some of it just looked like a pile of lumber. But, man, he was so excited. The craftsman was so excited, not just about the finished product, ha-ha, but about what he was making for his glory. He's not irritated with Job. He's glorying in the transforming his work he's doing in him. He deeply loves and treasures you. When we start to speak to people, then we are calling them back to their identity. One last one, we're calling them to purpose. What does Paul say? For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance or my salvation, and as it is my eager expectation, hope that I will not at all be at all shame, ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Do you know what Job's deepest cry was? That God, he could once again serve God. Job could only dream of a reality where he would step out of the darkness and once again feel the shining light of God's grace on his face. And that God would be happy with him. And folks, there's been times in my life where I've had some dark days. And I'm just being honest with you, I, where my heart is God. I just want, I just want to know that you love me. And I'll be okay. You ever been there? I just want to know you and forget me. I just, I just, I just need, I need to be reminded that I can walk in the sun and not in the shadow all the time. And Paul in his suffering is saying, that would be my salvation if I just knew that this will fall out for God's glory.
Job is saying, though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet my, I will argue my ways to my face. This will be my salvation. Job's saying that I could just stand in his acceptance. And I, I think what's interesting is what Paul points us to as he quotes from Job is what the real key is. What does God want from us in those dark places? What does he want from you? His demands seem harsh and his yoke seems chafing and his burden seems overbearing. What's he want? If we deal kindly with Job, what Job, if we were to sit with Job right now, we're by him with the ash heap, you know what we would say to Job? Job, you're doing what he wants from you. And Job would say, what are you talking about? We'd say, Job, he just wants you to trust him. And that's enough for today. Just trust him. But I don't understand. I know he's God, but I don't understand. You just said the key words. You know he's God. You know. And I know he could do all things. You're right. You believe. He doesn't dem- he's not demanding from you. His face does shine upon you. These are the things we should say to the suffering. Faithful trusting. What does a righteous man suffering puzzling pain dream about? New life in Christ. In other words, the comfort that would come to Job would be the truth that you and I already have. Do you tend to forget what you already know? I do. Do you forget who you are in Christ? Sometimes I do. Do you neglect sometimes the truth of his love, his affections, his choosing, his pursuing, and his care for you? What does God want from you? Trust him. Trust him in your confusion. Trust him in your pain. Trust him that he isn't angry with you, wrath-filled toward you, or withholding his love from you. Puzzling pain can remind us of deep truths that we so easily forget. Our hope and suffering is a reality that Job could only dream about.